Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we are traversing parallel worlds, both rife with monsters. Our guest is Matt Ruff, who you may know best as the author of 2016's Lovecraft Country. Now, seven years later, he returns to continue the story of Atticus, Letitia, Hippolyta, and the pernicious Caleb Braithwaite in the follow-up, The Destroyer of Worlds. I went into these books belatedly, pretty alarmed at the prospect of a white author telling the story of a beleaguered black family in the Jim Crow years. That felt like something that could and almost must go wrong. But no, against serious odds, Matt pulls it off, or, well, at least in my opinion, he does, and with some style. We debate the responsibility and potential pitfalls of the project, and what it gets right that other ventriloquized stories so often get wrong. But we also talk about monsters and cosmic horror and the terror and joy of a wide-open universe. All that fun stuff. And of course, Lovecraft, though not kindly. If you like this stuff that I do, there's loads more available for Patreon subscribers. Just sign up for a few quid at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and fill your boots, as my northern countrymen would say. But now, off we go along the highways, byways and hidden ways of a mad America. The past is a different country, thank God, though it may be closer than we would like to think. Let's talk scared. Hi Matt, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. In case anyone listening doesn't know this, you are the author of Lovecraft Country, which a certain portion of the audience may recognise more readily as a HBO TV series, but you wrote the book it was based on. Yeah. Well, that first book came out quite a, well, a good few years ago now. Was it 2016 it came out, the first one? Yeah, 2016 it came out. Okay, and by the time this podcast goes live, you'll have birthed the sequel into the world, and it's called Destroyer of Worlds. Oh, sorry, no, it's not. It's called The Destroyer of Worlds, and it picks up with your cast of characters a few short years after the event of the first book. Yeah. Now, it's always tricky talking about sequels, right? Because we have to assume a relative degree of listener knowledge without unnecessarily spoiling things. So I'm going to throw it over to you to make it all a bit clearer. Can you perhaps describe this world of yours for those who are coming to it for the first time and then perhaps introduce Destroyer a bit more specifically? So, yeah, my, my, my sort of my elevator pitch for Lovecraft Country when I was first thinking about it was basically that it was the X-Files if Mulder and Scully were black travel writers living in the 1950s. The story centers on a family who live in Chicago. Uh, they own a travel agency and they publish a traveler's guide called the Safe Negro Travel Guide, which is a fictional version of the real world Negro Motorist Dream Book, which was a... This was a historical guide published by a guy named Victor Green that basically listed hotels and restaurants and other accommodations across the United States and, and in other nearby countries that 
um, accepted black customers, which was a, a real issue back in the Jim Crow era, because even in the northern and western U.S., where you know there were they didn't necessarily have Jim Crow laws, segregation was legal, and in most places just wouldn't you know they wouldn't accept uh, black customer service. So. It was it was very useful when traveling long distances. You could just look up, okay, I'm going to be stopping in this town. You know, which hotels are available to me that are not going to give me a hard time trying to check in, and you know, where can I find food that they'll actually seat me and serve me? And it was just a way of avoiding embarrassment or, in some cases, outright danger. If you if you tried to sit down at a lunch counter, you could be chased out. So, um, so the idea is basically the family has this business, and then. Um, the son of the family, Atticus Turner, he's a Korean War veteran who's just come back to the United States. And uh, he and his uncle George, who runs the travel agency, they're also nerds. They're fans of science fiction and fantasy and horror and other kinds of genre fiction at a time when genre fiction, like much of America, didn't love black people back. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a trial for them to sort of find their way loving this kind of fiction. And so the story has Atticus becomes a a field researcher for the guides, and his job is to drive around the country looking for, um, you know, these these accommodations that will serve him and uh, writing about them. And at the same time, he and his uncle George are, you know, and the, and the rest of the family get drawn into a series of real life weird tales. They get to star in real life versions of their own kinds of favorite fiction, and uh, and they're also dealing, of course, with the more mundane terrors of life in the Jim Crow era. And so it's a combination of both these sort of individualized, uh, reimagined speculative fiction tales starring these different black characters, but also there's this arc story having to do with a white sorcerer's cabal called the the uh, Order of the Ancient Dawn, and it turns out Atticus has a, a family connection to that, and so they 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 become interested in him. So just as in in X Files, you know that there's this arc story about. Fox Mulder's sister being kidnapped by aliens and about this alien conspiracy. The the overarching story in Lovecraft Country has to do with this white sorcerer's cabal and their designs on Atticus and his family. And and uh, so that's the basic setup without getting into too much of a, a you know a uh, a spoiler situation. And then I originally wrote the book as a standalone. Um, it you know it it resolves, but because my, you know, my characters are still going to, at the end of the day, they're still going to wake up black in America in 1955. There's not like a happily ever after. And, you know, they're still going to have challenges ahead, but basically by the end of Lovecraft country, you realize is that this is a resourceful, you know, courageous family and whatever challenges that America still has to throw at them, they're equal to it. So I could have left it there and, and, you know, been, been perfectly satisfied with it, but even as I was writing Lovecraft Country, I started thinking about a longer story that would take these same characters and continue the narrative and carry it forward into the 1960s. Um, basically, what I'm doing with this novel and with I'm, I'm hoping to write at least one or two more books to tell this longer arc story that will focus on Atticus's young cousin, Horace, who's this sort of budding comic book artist. And he's like 12 years old. Uh, when Lovecraft Country starts. And my my goal is to carry the story forward to 1964 when the Civil Rights Act passes. And at that point, the Safe Negro Travel Guide, like the original Green Book, can cease publication because it won't be needed anymore. At that, at that point, it's like, it's time to go out and just claim our rights as full citizens to be served anywhere we want. Um, 
And so at that point, Horace will be 22. So what these novels are basically going to be, I'm going to be telling Horace's coming of age story and talking about the, the universal challenges of trying to make it as an artist, but also the very particular challenges that Horace is going to face as a young black man at that particular time. And with the other characters sort of oriented around that, sort of helping Horace into adulthood and helping launch him on his way. And um, this particular book, The Destroyer of Worlds, focuses specifically, as you can kind of guess from the title, on the subject of death and coming to terms with the fact that, you know, we're mortal. There's that point where you're growing up where you realize death isn't just an abstract concept. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to have to deal with it one day. And so what happens, you know, is that shortly before the story opens, one of uh, Horace's friends, a young girl named Celia Fox, who was a minor character in Lovecraft Country, is shot to death senselessly during a police action. And um, the day after Horace and his mother are over at the house where Celia and her father lived and the father is devastated. And someone says that thing that people say that, you know, this is a horrible tragedy, but she's in a better place now. And Horace reacts to this with dismay and then, you know, mounting rage because he's like, well, what do you mean? She's better off being dead. And um, this in turn leads into sort of, begin to question, well, what if this nice story I've been told in Sunday school about how, you know, when we die, we're all going to get to go to heaven and all these injustices will be made right. What if that's not true? And what if this life is all you get? And if if your life is stolen from you or if you're cheated out of something, that there's no ultimate reckoning for that. And of course, once you ask that question, even if you eventually find your way back to some kind of faith, you, you, faith is not knowledge. You're going to be living with uncertainty for the rest of your life. And again, for a young black man at that time in America, that kind of uncertainty can be crushing. So while dealing with this very serious subject matter and also still dealing with the state of America at the time, I'm also trying to tell an engaging and fast moving story. So that's the basic concept. Yes. And do not let me end this conversation without coming back to that thing about mortality and faith, because I've been trying to tease out these I think, quite intricate thoughts about how that marries with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft. And I I have thoughts, but it's perhaps good to work towards that rather than start with it. I'll, I'll kind of get up to speed. Sure. But like to start broadly, um, I read both Lovecraft Country and The Destroyer of Worlds back to back in the last few days, right? I had a whale of a time. But I was really surprised at how much they subverted my expectations. For a start, like the first one is kind of um, a collection of novellas or a story cycle rather than a traditional novel. I didn't expect that. Um, But what did surprise me is the relative absence of Lovecraft himself. I thought this was going to be a kind of direct mashup with Cthulhu and Nyarlathotep appearing all over Mississippi, you know, but it's not like that at all, as it turns out. So I suppose to start off, can you contextualize your story's relationship with Lovecraft's mythos, or is that not even relevant? Well, I need to talk a little bit more about the origins of this. I mean, I actually originally conceived of Lovecraft Country as a TV series. I This was back way back in 2007. I had been invited to come up with ideas for original series. And one of the things they came up with was this idea for a, a sort of X-Files type story, but centered on a black family in the 1950s and dealing specifically with issues of race and racism. And 
either because I was the wrong person to be making that pitch, or I suspect just because it was a little too early um, in, you know, American television wasn't quite ready for that kind of thing yet. It needed mm-hmm. another 10 years or so before that became an idea that people really wanted to embrace because I didn't do any of the things that you would do traditionally to make this idea more palatable to, to a television. Like I didn't give my central character Atticus, I didn't give him a white friend for the, you know, the audience to quote unquote identify with, because I felt that if you're telling a story about the horrors of racism, you want to stay focused on those characters for whom it is a horror. And I didn't want to distract with this, you know, having a white character was simply there to like sort of say what, you know, of course, not all white people are bad because First of all, if, if you need that kind of reassurance in order to get into the story, it's it's not going to work for you anyway. And yeah. again, you know, black folks who are dealing with the day-to-day horrors of this stuff are just trying to navigate their lives in segregation. They don't have a lot of time to spare to worry about the state of white people's souls. You know, if somebody wants to really put their own life on the line and and, you know, sacrifice their own safety and comfort in order to help improve black folks' lives, that's one thing. But if it's just like a you know, your average white American who maybe is not in favor of racism, but isn't necessarily doing anything to make life better. It's like, fine, your reward is that you get to live your life without worrying about this stuff. But then please don't ask me to affirm you in, you know, I've got other things to, to worry about. So, so, you know, I couldn't get the, I couldn't get this to go as a TV series. So I tried to reimagine it as a novel. And because part of what I wanted to do was, um, take individual story, you know, classic uh, horror stories and other other genre stories and reimagine them with black protagonists. I, I wanted to keep that sort of monster of the week a- aspect that you get from in the X-Files. Um, but that, su- that did suggest a, a series of short stories rather than uh, a novel. And I, you know, I, just the idea of going and, and asking my publisher to sign off on a book of short stories, I, I just didn't think that would work. And I didn't really want to write that. I wanted to write a coherent novel. And so I, I basically hit on this compromise idea of doing the literary equivalent of a season of television where the chapters would be episodes that, you know, initially you think it's separate stories. And then as you go along, you realize, no, these are parts of a larger whole. So yeah. it's, it's sort of a, it's, yeah, it's a season, it's an imaginary television show that you binge read instead of binge watching. That sort of made it work for me and bridge the gap. As far as Lovecraft, yeah, Lovecraft kind of came in through the back door where I needed a thematic link between cosmic horror and, you know, supernatural horror and the more mundane horror of the Jim Crow era. And of course, Lovecraft's perfect for that because he is this, you know, incredibly influential and talented horror writer. But at the same time, he was a, you know, a very vocal white supremacist. So Lovecraft Country becomes this kind of double entendre for both the paranormal landscape where monsters come from, but then also white America circa 1950, where a different kind of monster comes from. So it's, it's both of those things. And as far as his influence directly in the story, Lovecraft is also an iconic example of the dilemma of, you know, the, the black genre fiction fan where obviously it's not just him. It's like, as soon as I started looking, it's like almost every writer in that era did something that uh, a a perceptive black reader would bump up against where, you know, Mm -hmm. even, Jekyll and Hyde, where, you know, Hyde is, of course, he's not black, but he's swarthy. There's the implication that, you know, the evil Hyde is maybe Eastern European or Jewish, you know, so it's it's not enough that he's just different than Hyde, He's that he's different than Dr. Jekyll, that 
And uh, and again, you know, or or the classic Burroughs story is a John Carter, warlord of Mars. Well, John Carter fought for the South in the Civil War. So he was a slave owner whose slaves supposedly loved him. So it's this very romanticized view of of the pre-war South. And the thing is, it's like it would be one thing if you could just dismiss these stories as horrible dreck. But the problem is that despite the racism, they're they're often very entertaining. And particularly when you're a young kid, you come to them, you don't necessarily notice those aspects. You're just taken up by the adventure. Then when you're, you know, your your parents try to point out to you, yeah, but you know, the guy writing this book didn't even think you were human. You know, you don't want to hear it. You just want to be left alone to love your stories and to, to enjoy what you enjoy. And so there is that constant wrestling match that Atticus has and that uh, his uncle George have. And again, Lovecraft is the perfect iconic example of that, that in, in the novel, when Atticus first reads Lovecraft, you know, he doesn't expect to like it because he's not a horror fan. His, that's his Uncle George's thing. He's more into adventure stories, but he decides to give it a try one day when he's like 12 years old and he picks up uh, at the Mountains of Madness. And to his great surprise, he finds himself really getting into it. And then it's his father, Montrose, who's take, having none of this, who, you know, basically starts giving him a hard time and goes to the library and comes home with basically, you know, proof that, you know, Lovecraft was really this horrible racist guy. And you should, you, you should know that, that he, you know, and, and Atticus's response initially is not to get mad at Lovecraft, but to get mad at his dad for spoiling his fun. So that's sort of Lovecraft's purpose here is to sort of crystallize that challenge of how do you, you know, how do you deal with this? I want to, you know, how do you, it's not separating the art from the artist necessarily, just how do I, how do I cope with this particular dilemma as, as a black reader? Um, and I understand that for a lot of Lovecraft fans, yeah, the title does create a certain expectation. I have had a case, particularly there are some Lovecraft scholars. There's one in particular, this guy on Twitter who I, I've been living in his head rent-free, I guess, since the book came out, who's really bugged by this. And It's not S.T. Joshi, is it? No, it's not Yoshi. It's some other, I don't want to name him. It's not, because it's <laughs> not a, you know, it's he's, his reaction is your reaction, but... It's like, I, I understand. It's like, if I had meant to do a, a deep dive into Lovecraft and his psyche, I would have, that that would be a very different book. I would have probably tried to bring Lovecraft into the story as a character and I would have played fair. I would have tried to not just point out his flaws, but to try to explain why he held them. Because if I'm going to write about someone who was evil or had some horrible flaw, I want to explore why they saw the world the way they did, and which could be a really interesting story. But that's not what this is. And that's the thing. If you if you come into this expecting that because I call it Lovecraft Country that I'm somehow honor bound to to you know put Lovecraft in full context, then it's not going to work for you. It's it's kind of like I mean the, the analogy I, I came up with is if you imagine an astronomer, say Neil deGrasse Tyson, picking up a, a copy of Lovecraft's Shadow over Innsmouth, expecting it to be a story about an eclipse. <laughs> And then discovering to his horror, well, wait a minute, what's this business about these backwoods town people having sex with people from the ocean? This is crap. You know, why, why did he give it that title? Well, it's because the title is, is a figure. It's a figure of speech. It's metaphorical. It's not meant to be taken literally. And, you know, uh, I think the title's apt. It's just not necessarily apt in the way you might have first thought. So, I found it very apt because I, to be honest, don't have all the patience in the world for Lovecraft anyway. Um, 
I, I've said this before, I won't go on, but I, I think Lovecraft's imaginative skill just outweighs his, his literary skill to the nth degree. You know, like the things he thought up were game changing, but I, I can't really be doing with his writing. It just, it irritates me. I much prefer like Clark Ashton Smith or August Derleth or all the people, Ambrose Bierce, all the people who came later and fleshed out that, that mythos. Um, but the one way in which I think the title is really apt, and I could be wrong about this, but Lovecraft's fiction, well, all weird fiction, but particularly Lovecraft's, kind of presented this model of two worlds inhabiting the same space, a kind of impossible thing, really. Like, if you are lucky enough to not visit Innsmouth or Dunwich or Relay, and if you keep your eyes turned away from certain books, you can go on thinking that the world is safe and sane, but the unwary, they can tip into a whole other reality. And it seems to me that racism performs the same way. It's kind of, particularly for these characters in this time, it's very much two worlds inhabiting the same space. So I think the Lovecraft thing, the Lovecraft country, it's almost like a state of mind or or a, a sort of different plane of existence almost. Oh, yeah, no, and that that also was another way in which the, the title was very apt to me, that... That sort of creeping dread. Yes, you're in a, you know, because the, the, the classic Lovecraft story, like not a lot happens very often. The monster, if it shows up at all, will only show up on the last page. The the meat of the story is just you are wandering around in a, in a location or a world where you're surrounded by beings that want to destroy you, that mean you no good. And if they notice you, it's going to be very bad. And, and the characters just ignore those warning signs and, and keep going. And so, yeah, that is very much the experience of, if you're if you're a black traveler, you know, in the in the 1950s, it's like any even something as simple as stopping in the wrong town after dark can can lead to disastrous consequences. And the other way in which this is apt is that, you know, even today in America, we tend to think of racism as a primarily southern phenomenon because that was where slavery happened. Um, and that was it is true that, you know, in the in the post-Civil War era that segregation was was much more explicit and much much more in your face in the south they they didn't try to hide the fact that yes there are areas that are whites only and areas that are blacks only but you had the same level of racism in the rest of the country it just manifested differently where in the south it was about trying to continue the exploitation of black labor even in the absence of slavery so black people were welcome to stick around as long as they they knew their place and kept to it um in the North and the West, it was more about, we just don't want you here at all, but we're not going to admit that openly. So you would, you, you know, you, sometimes you would get signs saying, yes, this, this area is whites only, but, but more often you would get this more ambiguous thing where people would refuse to serve you, but they would all, all sometimes lie about the reason, even as they were doing it, where, you know, it's like, oh, it's not that we, we don't let black folks stay at this hotel. It's that, oh, sorry, we forgot to turn on the no vacancy sign or, oh, you know, or you'll, Maybe you'll sit down at a restaurant counter and they'll just pretend they can't see you until you give up and go away in disgust. And and that, but other times it could just suddenly turn violent and you would never know when that switch was going to happen. So particularly in the North, there was just this level of, of paranoia that went along with it. It's not only you're being discriminated against, but you're, you're being driven crazy at the same moment. And it's a very Lovecraftian kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's ironically, you can learn a lot about writing that type of story by reading Lovecraft's fiction because he, you know, he very much understood what that was like. It was just for him, it was 
the hostility, the nihilistic, you know, nature of an uncaring universe that that he was thinking about, rather than you know just other human beings who who have racist beliefs. The illustrated Negro Guide that the character George puts together, like your fictional version of the Green Book, it is a brilliant way of framing that idea. It makes sense now that I think of it in terms of like a TV series because. You know, Atticus and George and Hippolyta, they are explorers in dangerous realms, aren't they? It's just that, that before, up until the book starts, that those dangers are more, slightly more prosaic and human than yeah. they become. But the map may as well say, you know, here be monsters. <laughs> I mean, it, right. it, it does feel like a different world overlaid over white America, you know, or beneath white America, if you want to kind of conceive of it but it yeah it that i've read a lot of reviews of this that point out almost wrote i thought you know about how it felt like a, like a neat little thing to say you know like the, the horrors of 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 the 1950s jim crow racism are so much more profound than the horrors of the otherworldly and i was like yeah okay i get it like it sounds like a neat thing to put on on, on a you know a new yorker article <laughs> but it is so true there's one scene in the in the second book in Destroyer that, um, I mean, it's almost innocuous in, in, in the, in scale, but where this kind of secondary character, um, Anthony is a pilot, a, a black pilot, and he lands on a kind of, you know, rural airstrip and he's just basically cheated out of his money and he has no recourse. And it's horrifying yeah. that that was for me, perhaps the part of the book that felt the most genuinely dangerous and uneasy. Well, yeah, this was, and this is the thing that, you know, that I, like what, what I, when I'm thinking about the character of Atticus, who's this ex-soldier, you know, he's, he's faced with this, he sort of crystallizes this dilemma that, that a lot of black folks faced where in a stand-up fight, you know, Atticus can usually win. It's like if somebody, you know, if somebody, if a single person comes against him, he knows how to defend himself, but it's a case where even if he wins the fight, he'll still lose because if it's a black guy beating up a white guy, even with good cause, then the police are going to come and you still you're still in trouble. So it's like you have to be very careful when you when and how you choose to defend yourself. And sometimes the the only way to survive is to just basically give in. You know, you mm. you just you have to swallow your indignity and just live with it. And that. The, the constant stress, it's like post-traumatic stress because you're just constantly being forced to swallow your humiliation because that's, you know, if you try to stand up for yourself at the wrong moment, it's going to cost you everything. So yeah, that is very much uh, uh, a part of the a story. And it, it is one of the most horrifying things where you're just, you know, you, you, even if you defend yourself, you'll lose. There's just no mm. good way to go. We've reached the, the obvious point where I've got to ask you a question. You've no doubt been asked ad nauseum. But how did you feel about the challenge and I suppose the responsibility of writing from a multitude of black perspectives? Because surely it must have been daunting. No, I, I obviously I went into this knowing that because I am a white man writing from, you know, mul these multiple black perspectives that I, I was going to encounter a, a certain amount of skepticism, particularly from black readers. And if I did a lousy job, I would hear about it. This would, you know, this would give people a point to say, you know, why, why did you even try to do this if you were going to screw it up? And, but I never saw it as a reason not to do it. I mean, I've, my, my books are all over the map in terms of, you know, genre and subject matter. I've been, I've been very lucky in that and that I've been able to, to write in multiple genres, but one of the constants of my fiction is that I like, 
using the power of fiction to explore other worldviews and other people's points of view. I, you know, it, it, it's it's really neat to put myself into the head of a protagonist who isn't like me, who has different challenges and different things to deal with, and then try to do a psychologically realistic portrait of that person. So I've been doing this my whole career and um, Lovecraft Country is just one more variation on that. And at this point, I'm, I've got a good enough sense of my own strengths and weaknesses as a writer that I, I felt like if if I was going to do this, if, if I, I wasn't capable of pulling it off, I would figure that out before I embarrassed myself publicly. And in the meantime, it's just, you know, it's, it's good to be a little nervous. It keeps you from getting lazy. It keeps you on your A game. And so, you know, and again, particularly where black readers was con- were concerned, I knew I'd be playing to a tough crowd, but um, tough crowds can be won over. And the discipline required to do that r- results in a better book overall. So I was perfectly up for the challenge. Um, and I, I think it's, it's paid off, obviously, in the way the book has been received. Well, you know, it perhaps is a great testament to the success of your storytelling, your approach, that there has been such kind of little, like almost no controversy about these books. You know, you've been left unscathed as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. I suppose in light of things like American Dirt, which was the, you know, the core celeb of this kind of controversy, um, or or even movies like Green Book, which, you know, bears some resemblance to the structure of your story, to the, some details. Like, wh- what do you, perhaps you're not the right person to ask, but what do you think you did right that those texts got wrong? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, leaving aside, you know, whether you think the book works or not, is that I think that you know, the, the way people often express it, they'll, they'll say, well, of course, you're, you're free to write whatever you want, but critics have the, the right to respond any way they see fit. And I think that's true. But what is important is that what, what neither author or authors or critics have a right to is to be taken seriously. You know, <laughs> respect is a thing that has to be earned. And I think that when you, when you look closer at these controversies, like the American Dirt controversy, typically what happens is one of two things, and sometimes both, is either the author demanded respect they hadn't yet earned, or they gave respect to criticism that they probably should have just ignored. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't ask permission to do this. I just went into it knowing I've got to write a good book, and if I don't, then I'm I'm going to get a hard time for it. But I, I did believe that if I did a good job, that I could win up win over at least those readers whose opinion I cared about, mm-hmm. and so. And I just didn't talk about it in advance. I think it's it's silly if you're going to do this. You 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 don't draw attention to the fact. Oh yes, you'd like you're you, you're aware that yes, as a white man or as a you know as a white author, I'm going to be I'm going to be dealt with skepticism. But you don't bring it up yourself. You just keep your head down, do the work, and then let people respond the way they do. And then if a critic responds with a completely ideological response, or saying, "Well, you shouldn't have written this," then at that point, I would ask somebody, well, okay, can you point to something that I did wrong? And if they can't actually point to anything, if it's just, you know, they just don't like the idea of me writing the book, well, you have the right to make that criticism, but I just don't take that seriously. You know, if, if the problem is that I have the wrong author photo to be dealing with this subject matter in your opinion, it's like, okay, well, that to me is not really an interesting criticism. If you can say, well, you did this wrong or you did this wrong or here you, you, you know, then, then we might have something to talk about. Um, 
I think with the American Dirt controversy, I, I, I didn't read the book, but I know that um, like they, they built it up. Not, it was not just a thriller, but they, they were pitching this, this really important book with, you know, important political things to say. I, I don't know if it was the, the publishers who said, you know, called it like the next grapes of wrath. And if you're going to, if you're going to raise the bar that high, then you you better be ready for the response to it. Um, and I also think that I, I, there was something in the afterward where, uh, Janine Cummings, I think she said something along the lines of she wished that someone Browner had written the book. And again, that's, first of all, that's a weird thing to say because unless you're plagiarizing, like your book is a unique product of your imagination. There's no one who could write your book, but you like other persons, other people could obviously write a book very similar on a similar subject, but your book is your book. There's no other person to write it for you. So it's like she was acknowledging in advance that, yeah, I feel like I shouldn't be doing this. Mm. And then with Green Book, I, I just, I didn't see the movie either, but I, I got the sense that that was one of those stories that was more interested in reassuring white audiences that, yeah, you know, white people are mostly okay. And it, but why is that interesting? You know, I, again, if you, I, it's just much more interesting to me to focus on the, the, the black characters who are struggling with life in that era than, than trying to reassure people that, you know, most white people were, were, you know, we didn't actually do anything to make life better, but we really didn't think racism was good. Well, okay, but it, first of all, that's kind of a weird thing to want to be proud of, but it's just not an interesting story. Yeah. So I, I think that's the thing is that you do a good job and then, you know, ask critics to judge you on, you know, engage intelligently with your work, but don't don't ask to be respected simply because you're trying and, don't ask to be immunized in advance from unfair criticism. This is, you, or, or from fair criticism. Right at the start, yeah. you kind of said what I think this entire discussion and discourse comes down to, which is, you know, I firmly believe anyone can write what they want, but you cannot expect to not be ridiculed if you get it wrong. You know, you can't, you, you, you're, you're putting yourself out there. Anyone who creates anything is putting themselves out there. And like you said, going into this, you know, you knew that you couldn't be lazy. You couldn't, you know, you, you had to keep on top of it like you said and I think that is the difference because no part of this book either of these books feels the slightest bit exploitative or exoticizing it never feels like you are presenting you know black culture as something other to be examined for a award or a, or a literary gimmick and having I have read American Dirt and I, I've been a bit on a bit of a journey with this entire debate because when American Dirt face first came out I had a review um commissioned by the LA review of books of it and I wrote this review and it was a sort of middling review and then they pulled the review because they didn't want to <laughs> enter into the discourse at all and it, it kind of put me on the back foot because I'm a firm believer in anyone can write anything so I had a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to sort of, not say defending the book, but taking umbrage at, at a lot of the criticism. And it's only years later that I've become a bit wiser and spoken to more diverse writers and a lot more diverse readers that I can now see the harm that book was doing. And I, I have come around to think that it is something that is a bit of a... Uh, I think a lot of the criticism is, is very, very valid because it's just a melodrama. That's the problem. It's a it cheapens the experience. It's a melodrama with pretensions of something else. Whereas your book's the opposite. Your book is a a piece of speculative, fun genre fiction, which has no pretensions that I can see, but it nonetheless slips 
all of these serious issues in there without trivializing them. Um, so I think there's things we possibly agree on and disagree on in this whole topic, but regardless of whether we agree or disagree, I, I think your book has threaded that needle perfectly well. And I think tonality is a big part of it as well, right? And um, there's a great quote that I read from you from somewhere. You said, it's okay to be funny, but you want to be funny in a way that your characters would appreciate. And I love that because I think that's I think that's the, the, the purest form of accuracy and integrity. It's about it's almost about your characters more than your readers because your characters are the, are the most important contextual entities. If that makes sense. No, it does. And I mean, this is the other thing is that I you know this is this is one of the traps that I, I do think a lot of white authors fall into is that they worry they worry while they're writing about what is this going to say about me and I. I make a very conscious effort when I'm writing. It's like, I, I want to keep my thoughts about this separate from my characters. And that, that applies to things like, you know, plot points in, in horror. There are times when you want the character to do something that objectively is very stupid, like go down to the basement with a faulty flashlight or whatever. And like, I know why I want them to do that, but I've got to come up with a reason that makes sense for them. Otherwise it's just quite obvious that I'm pulling strings from behind the, you know, the scenes and it just throws you out of the book. And, I think the same thing can happen when you have a, an author who's worried about, oh, am I going to get criticized for being racist for doing this? And they they start putting things in the book that are are there to sort of cover their their bases and protect themselves. And I just don't worry about that. I'm like, I'm I'm I want to I want to know what my characters are thinking. I want to do justice by them and by the story. And you know, there are there are decisions you make in a story sometimes that you know are are probably going to upset some readers or make them angry, and I'm fine with that as long as it serves the story. Mm -hmm. um, so you just can't you can't be too worried about your own reputation when when you're doing this. Um, and yeah, it's it's and, and again the expectation because I, I know like one of the responses of the whole American dirt controversy is you know people are calling for like a more civil criticism or or more polite criticism. I understand that impulse, but I guess my feeling is that that the flip side of me getting to write whatever I want in any way I want, and which means that sometimes I might make people very angry, is that critics get to make their choice too. Mm. And there's no way to you know to say you know you you can only criticize me fairly and in a positive way. That, that would not also imply that, well, then there are limits on what I can do. So it's just like, no, critics, critics are allowed to be, they can be unfair. They don't have to be nice to you. They don't, you know, they don't have to, they don't even have to read the book. If you, if the, if the idea of the book offends you and you want to write a lengthy essay saying why I shouldn't have written it, then that is totally your right. And I would never tell you not to do it, but my response to that is going to be, I, I just, that's not a criticism I can really take seriously. Not because you don't have a right to say it, but just because the criticism that is useful and helpful to me is the criticism that engages, you know, intelligently and in good faith with the work I've, with the words I've actually written. And if you want to go off on some other tangent or if there's something else you want to talk about, that's a perfectly legitimate expression. But I, I'm just, I'm just not going to, you know, I, I'm not necessarily going to agree with that. I'm not necessarily going to give you any response to that. So, and that's the problem, I think, is just people who are, particularly people who've been burned this way, who've been vilified for something they've written. They, they want to, they want to somehow put guardrails up for critics, but not for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that, that's just not the way it works. Yeah. So yeah, that, that we firmly agree on. Let's, let's move on into the detail of some of this book. Cause you know, we can't talk mm -hmm. about 
appropriation and broader issues all the time. Um, reading these two books, like back to back, it strikes me that Destroyer of Worlds is much darker than Lovecraft Country. Like you, you seem to deal much more directly with the horror of slavery because there's this brilliant opening chapter set in the 1850s. And obviously you mentioned police brutality and and essentially police murder is an even more pressing concern this time around. Were you consciously writing a tougher, grimmer story? I mean, I think in this case that the the theme specifically about coming to terms with you know with mortality and death and the uncertainty of that 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 just sort of necessitated a darker approach that um you know and 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 again because i'm because i'm in a, in essence horace is now taking atticus's place as the central figure in the drama so i'm i'm also in a certain way addressing the stuff from that that perspective of a teenager he's 15 now and and everything is amped up when you're that age and you're dealing with these things for the first time anyway you know there's a scene late in the book where he goes to the bench where Celia died and he sits down in her place and tries to imagine what it would be like to be you know killed mm-hmm. by a stray bullet and it's it's it goes to a very dark place but I, I remember my own my own youth. The first time I seriously contemplated this thought that one day I'm going to die and it, it you know I might not even see it coming and that is a that is a really dark thing to be thinking about and and then again you're a teenager everything is just jacked up to eleven in terms of your emotional response so it seemed it seemed like a valid approach and again I I always try to. I try to be honest without being so overwhelmingly lurid that people are thrown out of the story. And and there again, it's just, I, I have my own sense of when I'm starting to go too far and when to rein it in. So, um, but yeah, that, that's why it, it's, it's, if it's darker, it's partly just because it has to be to, to do what I needed to do. Right. I, cause I wonder whether it was to do with the real world because the first one came out in 2016. So it was presumably written before the world went completely fucking mad you know, which seemed to begin in 2015, 2016. I wonder whether all the stuff that's gone down, like the sense that we're we're in a real political nadir, I just wonder whether that had kind of fed into this, that you were feeling more depressed about the world. Honestly, no, I've, you know, it's funny. I've, Again, I'm, 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 I mean, I'm an old guy. So at this point I've, I've lived through previous apocalypses. So I, I didn't react to like the Donald Trump presidency or the pandemic in quite the same way that a lot of other people did. Like for me, the 9-11 hit me a lot harder. And um, at this point it was just sort of like, I watched other people respond the way they did. And, um, but no, I, it's not that I was indifferent to it. It was just like, oh yes, the world is doing what it does periodically. Um, but uh, in terms of the the internal logic of the story, no. I, I again, I tried to keep my my reactions to things separate from my characters' reactions to things. And obviously, there will be some effect because I, it is my novel and it is my story. But um, yeah, no, I I don't at least consciously have any sense that that it was because of that. And in fact, I probably would have stayed far away from it because I just figured that if the world doesn't end, there's going to be a point, you know, another five or 10 years down the road when Donald Trump is just a, you know, a blip in the rearview mirror. And, you know, the, well, hopefully this pandemic will one day end, but I, I don't want it to be tied to the present day to the point where it will seem dated, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a decade from now. Yeah. Okay. I just, well, that's good to hear. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're feeling more cheerful than, than, than the book potentially hints at. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you mentioned that Horace, it's kind of going to be his story. I hadn't picked up on that because the first time round, you know, you were with Atticus and his father Montrose and, and his uncle George, and, and they still have their role to play in, in Destroyer. But Hippolyta, Letitia and Ruby, this trio of, of female characters, they come right to the forefront in this one. And I, I thought it was much more their story. It's interesting. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of, you know, to the, to the extent that there's a focus that's sort of um, driving all the characters. Horace, for me, is at least coming to the center. I, I do agree, though, yeah, that the women were always just very interesting to me because they have an additional layer of challenges. And, you know, I, I mean, for different reasons, I just, I just find all of their journeys fascinating. Like Ruby, in particular, her relation with Caleb Braithwaite is just mm-hmm. a, a fascinating thing to me. And I, I, I definitely see that going interesting places. So I try to make every character's uh, subplot as interesting in it as everybody, as everybody else's. And, um, and yeah, and particularly with, you know, with Hippolyta, with, uh, with Ruby, with Letitia, I've got a lot to work with in terms of, of what they, they get up to. Mm. So, Well, I mean, out of everyone, I think Montrose is my favourite character, Atticus's father, because I kind of respect this unwavering sense of anger and injustice that he has. He's the one who kind of quite early in the first book kind of informs Atticus about the problematic nature of the, of the pulp fiction he's reading like we talked about at the start of this conversation and he's he's incensed by this this idea that there are lines that cannot be crossed i think it's, it's easy to he makes me laugh as well because he's such a kind of grump but yeah he's probably my favorite character but in terms of who's got the most interesting story yeah it is hard to argue ruby and hippolyta because ruby has got like probably the the greatest ethical dilemma in this world in that she's she's developed the the ability to quite literally pass as a white woman um by use of certain means and it, it it opens up ideas about self and you know rights and and duties to others and things like that and hippolyta has basically got access to the entire universe <laughs> yeah can you talk a little bit about writing their stories? Because it feels to me like they are where your real imaginative work is really kind of churning away. So, gosh, I mean, Hippolyta is in some ways modeled on my own mother, who was, uh, you know, she was a missionary's daughter. She was born in Brazil in 1932, grew up in Argentina uh, during the Perón era, and emigrated to the United States when she was 23 years old. So, she was a very intelligent woman. She spoke, you know, four languages fluently and could get along in a half dozen others. But the thing about growing up in Argentina in that time period, women were not encouraged to seek higher education. So she never got a college degree and she never really figured out what she wanted to do with her life. And one of the reasons she was so supportive of my ambitions to be a writer was that she felt like, you know, if I knew what my niche in this life was, if, if I knew what I wanted to do with myself, then I deserve the best possible chance to achieve that. And um, a lot of, you know, some of Hippolyta's characteristics are, are drawn from this. Like, obviously they're very different in other ways, but um like Hippolyta's need to like obsessively get out on the road and drive. My mother was like that, you know, as soon as she got her driver's license, she just 
she was very restless. She was never happy exactly where she was. So any excuse to, you know, get in the station wagon, throw me in the back and, you know, take off cross country to visit our relatives, she would do that. And um, unfortunately, she just, you know, she never did quite figure out what her her ideal goal in life would be. Hippolyte at least has that advantage that she knows what she wants to do with her life. She just can't because she's a black woman in the 1950s. But um, so I think with Hippolyta, part of what I was doing was sort of like talking about that, that frustration of, of having intelligence and potential, but, but not being allowed to find it. Um, and then Ruby started out um, partly to solve a problem that I created for myself, where I had decided early on that all of the viewpoint characters in the book were going to be, I, I was going to stay with my black protagonists. And that created a problem because I needed a way to, show what the white villains were doing when they thought nobody was watching them. So I needed to get somebody in the room. And so eventually I hit on the idea of doing a Jekyll and Hyde story where I would pick one of my characters and let them transform into a white person. Um, and of course, once you do that, it, it, it raises all sorts of interesting questions. And it's, it's a, it's a double inversion because where in the original Stevenson story, it's like, Jekyll becomes Hyde so that he can sin without consequence. Ruby wants to become a white woman so she's just so she can just live a normal life. And the sin lies not in what she wants to do with that, but in what she has to do to get that opportunity. And the, you know, and yes, and and I can exempt myself from these rules. I can, you know, basically go live in a, a broader America, but I'm leaving behind my family and my friends and my community. And uh, you know can I live with that? And it, it's not just, it's not just the sense of betrayal, but that you become horribly isolated and alone um, because you can't tell anybody what you're doing. And of course this actually happened. I mean, in, in the case of Lovecraft Country, Ruby is described as being very dark skinned. So she's not somebody you could ever think of passing, you know, without magical means, but there were certainly plenty of real life examples in America of people who were, were, you know, quote unquote, technically black, but who could pass and they just, basically left behind the black community because it was just easier to live their lives that way. And some of them were terribly isolated as a result. It's, it's not an easy choice to make. And of course there, there's also analogies to, um, you know, gay people who were living lives who were closeted that, that there's a sense too there, that sense of awful isolation that you can never, you can never let most of the world know who you truly are. And you escape by pretending to be something you're not in a, in a somewhat different way than someone who's passing as white. So that was one of the things that started out as, a, as sort of to solve a practical problem. But as soon as I thought of it, I realized, wow, there's a lot of really interesting things I can explore with this character. Yeah, that, that Ruby feels like, like I say, like the emotional and intellectual dilemma at the heart of the book, I suppose. Whereas Hippolyta, it's just joyous and it's quite touching that you're you know you're perhaps giving your mother the universe to explore you know that's that's quite a nice nice concept um my favorite bit of the entire book right is when Hippolyta and Horace visit this other planet because there's a moment of quite striking horror in what they find there it's quite sad if you've read the first book um but then they have this fantastic conversation about astronomy and faith and the vastness of the universe. And right at the start, when I said, don't let me not have this conversation, this is what I want to talk about, right? These are some really tangled thoughts. You, you sort of condense the cosmic 
horror thesis into like three pages <laughs> in this conversation between the two of them. Um, right. Talk about the size of galaxies and how long it would take to get placed and stuff. And and you you talk about Copernicus and how he'd already, in a way, introduced the core of cosmic horror, I suppose, by suggesting that humans aren't the center of the universe, that the expanse is so much bigger and, and entirely more indifferent than we thought. Yet that's welded to this, as I said, joyous thing about Hippolyta can explore it. So I suppose my first question is, to you or in the world of your book, is that scale, that cosmic scale, scary or exhilarating? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, it, it and, and of course, this does tie very much into Lovecraft. I mean, Lovecraft is sort of one of the, I don't know if you'd call him a victim, but he was clearly, he was clearly influenced by that coming of age at a time when people were discovering just how big the universe is and by extension, just how small and insignificant humanity is. And, and it, it, it led some people to sort of crazy nihilism where nothing matters. And I, I think a lot of his fiction derives from this just sort of awful dread of realizing how little we matter. And what does that say about things like, you know, an afterlife about God, about, you know, um, yeah, to me, it's, it's a, it's an interesting concept, but because I grew up knowing that the universe was so large, I, I, I missed that shock of discovery that I think, you know, people at the time must've, must've faced. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the thing with, you know, even Copernicus, I mean, he, as, as Hippolyte explains, he still basically clung to the, the Ptolemaic model that, the universe and the solar system were one and the same. And then it was bounded by this sphere of fixed stars, which, you know, was an actual, supposedly an actual sphere where with the, you know, the constellations, the lights, of the constellations embedded in it, like fireflies and amber. And it's just, they believe that there was this thing revolving around the, the earth or later revolving around the sun at incredible speed, which is why you would see the constellations rise and set. And then, it wasn't until sometime later that folks came along and sort of like shattered the crystal sphere and, and said, no, it just goes on. But even then they hadn't figured it out because then, then it was like the, the size of the universe expanded from the size of one solar system to the size of the Milky Way. So the galaxy became the universe. And then finally in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble is looking out and notices that these little smudges that they call nebulae are actually other galaxies just very, very far away. And then it's like the universe becomes not only large enough to be infinite, but it's those, those galaxies are rushing away from it. So not only is it incredibly unimaginably big, but it's getting bigger. <laughs> and, and what do you do with that? You know, if you're trying to, if you're, if you're growing up in a, you know, in a, say a Christian background where you're taught about a God creating the earth and putting human beings in the center of creation. And yet you're looking out at this vast cosmos, much of which would be superfluous. It was really all about us. So, I guess for me, yeah, that's that's where I come at it. I'm a, you know, my dad was a minister, my mother was a, a, a missionary's daughter. So there's there's very much I come from a traditional religious background, but I also I know that the the universe is a lot bigger than they they wanted us to accept in Sunday school. So there is this tension, and I find that fascinating. Um, so so that's what I got thinking about, right? Because all this conversation, it's such a brilliant few pages, but all this conversation about the the scale of the universe and all this is is being anchored in this internal debate in Horace about his faith because his faith is threatened by the death of his friend by Celia because he's saying what if it's all meaningless and stuff and 
And then it, it made me think in a way I never had before about how religion, like our, you know, earthly religion, how that's situated in relation to Lovecraft's elder gods or or cosmic horror or just scientific reality or whatever. Because I'm an atheist, right? And I, I have zero belief in any kind of high, numinous higher power. So the meaninglessness and the chaos of the universe, not only does it not scare me, it actually reassures me because I'm like, none of this shit actually really matters, you know? Um, but if you're a believer, I'm trying to work out if the notion of cosmic horror and all that scale is more or less frightening. I mean, I think to, it, it depends on the type of believer. I mean, I think people who, who think they've got it all figured out, who, who think they understand the real story behind the universe, they would respond to it by just saying, well, you know, that's a good spooky story, but it's not true. They would just reject out of hand that the, the cosmic horror is, is relevant. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a thing. It's like, you're only afraid of the dark. If you believe there might be something in it, if you know that there isn't, then you're like, okay, well, you can, you can tell me a scary story about things in the dark, but I know it's not true. I know, you know, I'm going to die and go to heaven. It's, it's when people are not expecting, you know, or when they're, when they're, religious faith is founded on a specific physical belief about what the universe is like. And then that is challenged by, well, you know, evolution is real or, well, you know, it's not just this one solar system with earth at the center of it. It's this vast cosmos that we don't even know how big it is. I think that's where it leads to the sort of real, um, that kind of paradigm shift is just, just really shattering to some people psychologically. And they, you know, as Hippolyta herself talks about during that conversation, like, rather than questioning the way they believe, some people will just jump from one certain to another one. And, and the, the other one they jump to is, is often much darker. It's like, if, you know, if God, if, if the God I grew up believing in doesn't exist, then there must be no God at all. And that is a really terrible thing. Um, that's the, the deal. And, and Horace is trying to find a middle ground where it's like, okay, best case, I'm going to have to live with uncertainty. How do I, how do I keep from being driven mad by that, by not knowing yeah. what any of this means? And, and, and part of the answer, you know, as that conversation says, it's just to recognize that you're not the first person to feel this way. And the reason you're here at all to, to wrestle with this yourself is because there were people who came before you who faced much greater uncertainties than you did, who nevertheless found the courage to go on and and didn't just lay down and die, however many chances they had to do that. And so, and now it's your turn. And it's only if you take up that challenge and, and prove yourself equal to it, that the people who come after you will get their chance. Mm -hmm. So that scene was one of the things that convinced me is, yeah, this is why I, I want to write this book is so I can talk about this. I, will, let, let, I mean, we'll finish on that because you've alluded to the, the, at least one, if not more, novels to come in this world and and i'm glad as well to hear that you're going to take it up to civil rights um because to be honest at the end of the first book when the villain caleb is is defeated in some way i had this kind of anticlimactic feeling where it's like okay they've beat the evil wizard but like you said mm -hmm. they are still in 50s america all of the magic felt so tiny compared to the actual everyday threat and i think it's quite nice that your your aim is to take this story to a point where we actually get a genuine sort of optimistic ending 
Well, and, and one of the things I have to say, though, too, is that the reason the magic feels so tiny is that I one of the things I had to be very careful about, you know, it, it is fun to to mix uh, fantasy with reality and, and with history in this way. But you, you've always got to be careful not to cheat because it would be very easy to create a magic solution that sort of overwhelms the historical reality. And I never wanted to do that. I, I wanted to be grappling realistically with the history, which meant I had to put definite limits on what magic could do, mm-hmm. which is one reason why the Lovecraftian model where it's horribly dangerous to use is very useful. It's like, I can't, you know, I can't just magically undo the horrors of the past with, you know, time travel and resurrection there. Are, you know, if you try to, if you try to bring back the dead, it, it tends to end badly for everyone involved. So, and, and I'm doing that in part because I don't want to, I don't want to take away the the very real horror of the, the actual, you know, like the death of Martin Luther King, you, you don't want to make less than that by suggesting, well, but of course, with the right spell, you could bring him back and it would all be fine. It's like, no, it's, I want, I want death to have gravity. Otherwise I'm, I'm not really telling the true story anymore. So that's why if it, if the magic feels tiny, it's partly because it has to, to, to history is really what, what's going to drive this. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a great balancing act between the two. I, I enjoyed it a oh, great, great deal. Yeah. Um, I always finish off by asking my guests the same pair of questions. The first is, can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and, and tell us why? Um, so I was thinking about this, and I think the one I will recommend to you is The Ghost Writer by uh, John Harwood. Um, this is, this is I, I don't remember how I came across this, but it is one of my favorite horror stories. It's... Um, it's about a boy named Gerard whose family lives in a, you know, a, a small town in Australia. And uh, his mother sometimes tells stories of, you know, this fantastic childhood she had in a country estate in England and exactly how she came to leave England and how she ended up living in Australia. It, it, she doesn't like to talk about. And it, the implication though, is that something very bad happened that she just doesn't want to go into detail about. And so, um, and if you push her on it, she just gets angry. So Gerard doesn't really know the story. He just knows that there was something, there's something bad in mom's past and that not only sent her to Australia, but left her terribly nervous and, uh, you know, very frightened for Gerard's safety. So he's, he's sort of living this very smothered, sheltered childhood in, in a small town in, in Oz. And then one day he gets a letter from uh, England claiming to be from this pen pal uh, pen friends international asking if he would like to have a, a, a pen pal and should it be a boy or a girl? And can he tell something about himself so that they can, you know, help find him the ideal correspondent. And so he, he writes back saying he would like a girl as a pen pal and uh, begins this correspondence with a girl named Alice Jessel, who claims to be uh, uh, 13 years old, just like him. And, and, you know, her backstory is that she was in a terrible accident. Her parents died and left her in a wheelchair. But this is also an explanation for why she will never send him a photograph of herself. Um, of course, the reader, the reader will understand that this is, hmm. there's something really fishy about this. But Gerard, because he's lonely, takes up this what ends up being decades long correspondence and basically a love affair with this girl he's never met. And and as you go along, you begin to suspect, well, yeah, is, is Alice perhaps a ghost? It's a, it's a wonderfully creepy story. And part of what, what makes it special is that um, Gerard's grandmother is a, was a, an amateur writer who published a number of 
gothic horror stories in this uh, now defunct uh, magazine called The Chameleon. And as the story goes along, he, he comes into possession of various issues of this magazine with different stories that his grandmother wrote, each of which is both a really creepy story in its own right, but a clue to the larger puzzle of, of uh, what, what actually is going on with Alice Jessel and, and what happened to mom's family. So it's, it's just a really good, creepy, wonderful story called The Ghost Writer by John Harwood. And I would, I would highly recommend that. That sounds very, I've heard of that and it sounds very much kind of my, my sort of thing. Yeah. I, uh, I'll check that out. That sounds great. It's, What's that? What about twenty years old now? That book or something? I can't remember when it came out. But I remember I've been aware of it for a while. Yeah. My last question, Matt, is what truly scares you? Well, I mean, as will probably not surprise you, given the conversation we just had, I, I too am, and you know, quite nervous about dying. You know, I, you know, and beyond the obvious, the obvious things of just like personal oblivion and. Uh, losing people close to me before it's my turn. Um, I think one of the things to me is that I'm, I really would love to see how the story of humanity is going to turn out. You know, when people talk about threats like global warming or, you know, part of, part for me is like, I, I would just love to be able to hang around and see where history is going to go and where the human race is ultimately going to, going to end up because I, I just love to know how the story is going to end. And, it is it is kind of frustrating to know there's going to come a point where I'm I'm just not going to get to know the answers and you know when you know new technologies are introduced it's like oh wow what is this going to lead to what what's going to be like a hundred years from now and it's like yeah I don't get to take part in that I won't know so I would I would love it if it turned out I got to just you know even just as a shade who just observed and couldn't interact if I could just see how the story is going to end that would be great so that that's just kind of sad and a little scary that i'm not gonna i'm not gonna get that so that would be my thing I think. yeah but you don't want to hear him winthrop do you stuck in the bottom of a of a house watching the world go by i mean if that was the best i could get <laughs> i would take it <laughs> obviously you would like to you would like to have some interaction some freedom of movement but if it was just like just to at least watch the end of the show i would i would pick that over oblivion any any day so this is something you know, my wife talks about a lot at the moment she's had this sudden sort of existential realization that history will proceed without us mm -hmm. you know th these things that hit you like they're obvious common sense but they haven't hit you in some way you know and it's kind of it really struck her my my reassurance to her is that yeah it'll probably be quite like the 13 billion years when we weren't born yeah <laughs> I, I will settle just for living long enough to read the end of george r, r. martin's game of thrones <laughs> You know that's funny. That that is that is a thing, a trivial aspect of this that I think of from time to time. Is yeah, there are there are long running TV series that you know that you finally get to see the conclusion of, and it, it's great. But you realize that yeah, it, in every case that the, someday I'm going to start reading a series and I'm not going to find out what the end of it is. And yeah, that's a trivial example. I, I think the grander story of humanity is the the thing I'm most worried about miss, missing out on. <laughs> but yeah, that even even the little stuff, it's kind of a the larger problem in small. So. At least I will get to read the end of your series because I'm I'm loving these books and um, I'm hoping there are many more. Fingers crossed that that's true for both of us. Yeah, <laughs> check both ways when crossing the road, Matt. Yeah, the Destroyer of Worlds is out now. When you listen to this podcast, you can you can get it and continue the story. Uh, but for now, Matt, thank you for talking scared. Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
I'll be honest, I was worried. I was worried that would be an awkward conversation because, like I said in the intro, I came to these books late thinking that this story written by a white author couldn't fail to be unredeemably flawed, if not downright offensive. I mean, I love Stephen King, as you well know, but his regular trips to the well of the magical Negro trope are rarely anything but cringe, and most of that was done in the 80s, when the whole conversation about appropriation was still in utero, so I assumed the worst of Lovecraft Country. I was very wrong. These are lovely books. To my, albeit inexpert eye, they've got none of the exploitation or trivialization or presumption of the other texts that we mentioned in that conversation. Matt's characterization is rich and respectful, but never fawning. Atticus and his extended family are complex, flawed and deeply human, and there's not a trope in sight apart from the generic ones. And if anything, Destroyer of Worlds is even better than its predecessor. The characters are even more deepened without the need for world building. It's kind of like coming to The Dark Knight rather than Batman Begins, you know. The imaginative scope is wider, literally in Hippolyta's case, and the entire thing has both an added darkness in some of the grim realities on display, but also this emerging optimism about what's possible in the future. I read these two books over like one week, and it was a genuinely fun, laid-back, and immersive, just a pure, enjoyable reading experience. That said, as well as Matt does pull this trick off, I am still trying to work out whether he and I are on the same page when it comes to the potential controversies of writing from marginalised viewpoints, especially when it comes to things like American Dirt. Now, I want to clarify, because as I mentioned, I've been on a bit of a journey of my own with that book, I've moved towards what I think is a much better understanding of why it caused such concern and offence and possible harm. I mean, I didn't know about the god-awful marketing campaigns until recently, and Jesus, just to think, some of the tweets I put out defending that book, they they make me want to curl up and and die, yeah. Um, I'm not sure that Matt and my thoughts entirely align on what the problem actually is, about that situation, but we do both agree that, sure, write what you want, but be prepared for criticism, and I think that is the most important bottom line, it just comes down to that thorny question of what constitutes valid criticism, that's what remains. But anyway, all of this is just my opinion as a, as I said, inexpert white reader, and there is that question of who is a good critic, am I in this case, who knows? I could be talking out of my arse and not even be aware of it. So, over to you. Have you read Lovecraft Country or the follow-up? And and what do you think? You can reach me, as ever, on Insta and Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. And you can sign up for the bonus episodes aplenty at patreon.com slash TalkingScaredPod. All subscribers are massively welcome and will be spared the bloodletting. <laughs> One of these days, I really do have to get into Lovecraft properly. I keep taking cheap shots at the miserable old bastard and not really getting to grips with the substance of either his fiction or his bigotry. And I've got Victor Laval on the show very soon. And if you've read his amazing The Ballad of Black Tom, 
and you sh if you haven't, you should, then you'll know why Victor would be such a great person to consult on the matter. So maybe I'll ask him to stick around and get into it with me. Who knows? That's in a few weeks. Between now and then, we'll be graced by Jacqueline Holland next week with her brilliant take on the vampire, the god of endings. And after that, an, an up-and-coming writer called Margaret Atwood, who seems to hold much promise. <laughs> for now, though, drive safely, watch the skies for signs of life, and keep the past at bay by pushing forwards. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>